We'll take your copy of God's Word. We're going to look at, we're going to turn to Joshua <clears throat> chapter 5. I'm only going to read the, the end of the chapter, verses 13 through 15, as we consider this really unusual and unique experience that Joshua has as he meets the commander of the army of Jehovah. Joshua chapter 5, I'll begin reading in verse 13, reading uh, through, fif- uh, through fif- uh, verse 15, reminding you that this is God's word. Let's give attention to it even this afternoon. Joshua 5, beginning with verse 13, there we read, When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. Behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Throughout U.S. history, there have only been five five five-star generals. This rank is extremely prestigious granting to the one holding this rank the title of General of the Army. On December 20th, 1944, Dwight D. Eisenhower was promoted to this rank. Not only did he hold the rank of General of the Army, he was also promoted as the Supreme Commander of the Allied Forces in Europe. Undoubtedly, Eisenhower held significant power. Yet, in spite of his rank and position... He was still subordinate to others, namely Winston Churchill and President Roosevelt. Now, while you and I may never see that sort of prestige in this life, we can watch and take notice of those who have and realize that no one is really autonomous. Every creature on the face of the earth is subordinate to someone, somewhere, even if that someone is God only. That state of subordination should cause you to realize that you and I, we are not in control. I know we like to think we are, but the fact is we're not. That events that happen in your life, whether small or large, are truly in the hands ultimately of a sovereign God. It should not cause us to panic. We should not be alarmed by that truth, especially as Christians, as redeemed people. For the Christian, this fact is meant to be to bring peace and comfort. Isn't it better, in fact, that, that the God of heaven, who is alone sovereign and mighty and powerful, has all things in his hands? Isn't it better that way? Imagine what it would be like if that power was granted to evil people or the wicked. No, it's meant to bring peace. Indeed, it's meant to bring comfort. One only has to look back a few days to realize and see God's providence working in their lives as you reflect upon various events that have occurred in yours. Here in this passage, we have a man of great rank, the five-star general, if you will, of, of the army of Jehovah, a man of great prestige, a man held in high respect by the people, a man who was godly in every way, a servant of the Lord, a man of whom the Lord spoke to. 
a man who stands on the brink of war. Frightful times, undoubtedly difficult for any time in which uh, we face uh, those uh, trying circumstances of life. It would make even the strongest of men fear and quake and, and perhaps quiver. It is a war that has been told will be victorious. He has been told from the beginning of this book, as we have taken note multiple times already, that God has made great promises to his people that they will indeed take the land. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. But in that, we have also noted that uh, the means by which God employs to do that uh, includes the people of God. As much as it includes you and me today, as we are at war against the world, the flesh, and the devil Joshua must take up arms. Joshua must lead wisely. Joshua must be a general that is shrewd and careful. He must do these things or else the battle would never be won. But at the end of the day, no matter what happens, the fact remains that Joshua is a man. He is a man. Though only a few short days ago he heard the voice of God tell him that he will be successful, he is understandably concerned as any leader would be, as any good leader would be. It is in this moment of solitude, here in these verses, alone and away from the people, that Joshua is reminded and indeed comforted with this simple fact that he is not the one that gets the victory. That he is not ultimately in charge. He may be the five-star general of the armies of Israel, but he is not the one true commander. He is not the God of heaven, and he is going to meet him here in the plains of Jericho. It is here that this commander comes to him to bring comfort to him, to strengthen him, to show forth to him a perspective and a reality that all of us need as Christians. We are not in charge. He is. But as the one who is in charge, we can find great comfort and hope in all of that happens in our lives. And so this afternoon, I want to show you the alone sovereign of heaven and earth and remind you of the comfort that comes when we understand that he alone is in control. I know it's academic. I suspect every one of you, if I were to ask, would admit that. I would also suggest that it's easy to admit that when things are fine or going well. It's much more difficult, isn't it, on the brink of war? It's much more difficult when uh, things seem to be going completely sideways or even upside down or backwards, contrary to your plans and purposes. I want to remind you through this narrative, I want to show you the alone sovereign of heaven and earth, remind you of the comfort that comes when we understand that he alone is in control. We're going to see these brief verses together. In two points this afternoon. First, the appearance of the commander, and then the revealing of the commander. The appearance and revealing of the commander we know as the commander of the army of the Lord of hosts. We have a setting and a mood right away here in this passage. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. Now, the tendency, of course, for us as we read these kinds of narratives is we want to get to the climax as fast as possible, so we just keep on blowing right on by these opening expressions, but they are there for our help. They are there, really, I think, to set the mood of what is occurring. What do we have going on? 
Well, Joshua's by himself, isn't he? He's off alone, away from all the, the hubbub of the people, away from the congregation, as it were, locked himself in his study, as, if you want to refer to it that way, gets away from all of the clamor and the noise and the issues. What we really have is a post-sacramental preparedness. I say that because as we saw, not last week, but the week before, I think that's right, we noted that the early stages of chapter 5 highlighted for us the very sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper and the face of circumcision and the Passover. This is post-sacramental. It's after those celebrations. The people of God, including Joshua, as I remind you, have been equipped with the weapons of their warfare to take on the forces of Jericho, just as we are equipped every time we take these sacraments. Today we were doubly blessed in having the Lord's Supper and the sacrament of baptism to be equipped for the battle that is in front of us, of which none of you know, other than to say that the world, the flesh, and the devil is out there, and they are a mighty foe. He's being equipped. He has been equipped. We, too, are then equipped whenever we participate in participate in these things. But not only is there a post-sacramental preparedness going on as he gets by himself in, in solitude and meditation, and I suspect that's the reason why the narrator draws our attention to the fact that his eyes were down. He lifted up his eyes, the narrator tells us. What is he doing? He's meditating. He is thinking deeply about what has just transpired perhaps replaying in his mind all of the ways in which God has been faithful to him throughout all the years in which he's walked with him, suspect, maybe. But in the immediate context, he's reflecting on the reality of what circumcision means and what the Passover means and the battle that lies ahead in taking of a mighty fortress, a city that's sitting right in front of him. For he can see it there as were said in verse 13 when Joshua was by Jericho, a statement of proximity, close to the, to the battle, close to the enemy. Joshua is alone, and though we're not told specifically what, in fact, he is doing, I think knowing something of the man, the way the Lord has exalted him, knowing something of his character and his nature, I think we can... We can deduce reasonably that he is meditating upon the God of heaven. Undoubtedly, as a good general, he's surveying the city of Jericho, as any good commander would be doing, looking at the walls, the fortress that's there, and thinking to himself, how is it we're ever going to take this city? He'll find that out later, in a very unusual way, I'll say. But I think more to the point, he's meditating. Will the Lord be with us as he has promised? Maybe he's asking. I mean, let's face it. Let's just be honest with each other. There are times when we ask that question. Will the Lord be with me as he has promised? Will he really fulfill his promises to me? Will he provide for all of my needs? Will he ensure and take care of all that I stand in need of? Will he help me and guide me? Will he persevere me even to the very end? Will he hold me up in times of temptation and struggle? Maybe I'm the only one in the room that ever wonders that, but the fact is, it is natural, I think, in our sinful flesh and our weakness to think these things. Will God be with us? Will the Lord truly be with us? Am I ready, as the leader of these people, to 
lead these people successfully into this, what seems to be an impossible task. He's a leader. And he's alone. Now, leadership often, whether secular or sacred, is often a lonely job. There are times, of course, as leaders in the church, but you, those of you who have positions of leadership or did at one time, you know precisely what I'm talking about. There are times when decisions have to be made that won't be popular or things that have to be done that people aren't going to necessarily like. Leadership is hard, and so he's alone. He's contemplating. He's reflecting on the reality of what he's been called to do. As he's pondering these matters, he recognizes undoubtedly that these are matters of life and death. We too should be meditating in that way. This life is not our home, it's not yours. You're just traveling through this place. You're pilgriming. This is a pilgrimage, that's all it is. 70, 80, 90 years of the Lord's gracious. He gives to you our lives but a vapor. We should be meditating day and night on the life-giving bread of life, reflecting upon all the ways in which God has been faithful, all the ways in which He has cared for us, all the ways He has provided, all the ways that He's given to us what we don't deserve. Indeed, the way in which He's given us the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to do that if we are really, truly going to be equipped to take on the battle of Jericho, and that is to say the battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil, if we do not feed deeply upon the word of God, the bread of life, then we will be ill-equipped to take the battle on that's in front of us. This is the setting, it's the mood that is there. It's almost as though there's a quiet prelude being played on the plains of Jericho. As he sits there, and he's waiting. As he's doing that, there's this startling interruption. And it would be for anybody. Imagine yourself sitting there. You're doing the things that Joshua is doing. You're meditating upon the Word of God. You're thinking, you're praying. And suddenly there's a, there's a character, a, a person standing right in front of you. I've been startled by people, and that's just people in those situations. Imagine someone you've never met before. He wasn't there one minute, and now he's there. There's this startling appearance in the form of a dramatic interruption. As Joshua was looking down, a man appeared in front of him. There are two things to note about this man. First, he was unknown. Why do I know that? How do we know that? Because of the reaction that Joshua had. I mean, he asked a question. Are you for us? For our adversaries. He doesn't know this person. There's nothing about him yet. He also notes, we should note, that he was ready for battle. This unknown figure that is there. How do we know that? Well, because he's got a sword in his hand. A sword that's drawn, a sword that's prepared, a sword that's ready. As the text tells us, a man was standing before him with a drawn sword in his hand. As you know, an ancient weapon of war was the sword. And there he is. Now you're Joshua. 
What kind of reaction you're going to have? Startled? You might even be afraid. Oftentimes, when the angels would appear to men in the Bible, they would enter that their, our time, their time and space, and the first thing they would say to them is to be at peace, be still. Why? Because um, you weren't there one second, and now you're there. Uh, that's a little frightening. Thank you very much. So the startling appearance comes with this dramatic interruption with a dramatic question that follows. Joshua is a warrior by trade. And so he naturally asks this unknown man, are you friend or foe? If he's foe, then Joshua is ready for war. He's ready for battle. If he's friend, that changes everything. This is an important question, isn't it? He needs to know. In the old days, in times of war, there would often be ways in which you would identify the enemy. If you didn't know a person was coming towards you, you would ask a question. You would prompt, you would prompt that uh, response from this unknown figure by asking a question that only he would know. The, that if he were friend, he would know the answer, and if he was foe, he would not know the answer. There's actually an interesting narrative in the Old Testament. I can't remember the passage off the top of my head because it just popped in my head. Uh, in which a man was prompted to say a certain word and he couldn't say it correctly, and then he was identified as an enemy. Well, Joshua does that. He simply asks. Again, he must have been a Yankee. Gets right to the point. Friend or foe, he says. Are you for us or are you against us? It's interesting how Joshua identifies himself with the people here. He's not just interested in his own needs or wants. He is interested for the, in, in the well-being of the people that he is leading. And so we ask this simple question. Are you for us or against us? The whole narrative really hinges on the answer to this question. The answer doesn't come in a way that anybody would expect, does it? We don't get a simple response in this revealing of the commander now in the second point of the sermon. We don't get a, a, a response that we would expect to hear. Either yes or no. I'm against you. I'm for you. For all intents and purposes, it seems rather daunting to see a man standing there with a sword drawn that I've never met in my life. I would assume probably that he's against me. But Joshua asks, and there's this startlingly, startling, uh, startling reply that, that comes. As Joshua asked a question that each of you would have asked, given the circumstances, yet the man says, no, I'm sorry, I'm confused. And, you know, I'm one of those logical people, analytical in mind, and I, asked you, I didn't ask you a yes or no question. You're for me or against me? No, what's no? It's strange. Why no? Well, in the words of one commentator, indeed, as I pondered this, because it doesn't seem very natural, even flowing in the narrative itself, you would expect a yes or no. One commentator puts it this way, says that the man says no precisely because Joshua asked the wrong question. It's the wrong question. Perhaps you are wondering what question he should have asked. He should have said, who are you? Who are you? Not are you for me or against me or us. 
Who are you? The passage turns now to the center, indeed, the very point of the issue. For had Joshua asked, who are you, it would have hearkened back to the very question that someone that Joshua knew quite well asked. You remember the story? In Exodus chapter 3, when God had Moses before the burning bush, and he gives him all these instructions and, and, and says all these things to him, and what does Moses say? Who should I say sent me? Who are you, he says, that you are to send me to free the people from Egypt? And what does he say? I am that I am. He, doesn't, he answers the question. Joshua asked the wrong question. The supreme commander, as shown in the passage, answers him and states very candidly, I am the commander of the army of Jehovah. Now that might be a little confusing for many of you. Let me read from one commentator as he explains this phrase for our benefit. He says that this phrase or this expression, the more general term, commander of the army, refers most commonly in the Old Testament, in fact, 35 times, to a human military commander such as Phicol, the Philistine commander, Sisera, the Canaanite commander, Abner, Saul's commander, Shobach, the Syrian commander, Joab, David's commander, Amri, the Israelite commander, or Naaman, the Syrian commander. In each of these cases, the commander was the supreme military authority, but he was subordinate to someone else, the king. In almost every case, the commander's name is found only along with the king's name, not by itself. This figure, this person, he says, I am the commander, but he doesn't stop there. I am the commander of the army of Jehovah, the king, the alone sovereign, the God of heaven. The phrase itself has the connotation of war. It has the, the connotation of a recognition of one who would lead the very people of God and, in fact, all of the forces of God against the enemies of God. And as Joshua contemplates that, and as he hears those very words come to him, it gives to him hope, it gives to him a recognition that this is the God who fights for us. Here, in a figure of which he can see and identify, there is, as it were, a sustaining presence that comes into the heart of Joshua as he contemplates war, as he contemplates the battle. He finds and he sees that he is not alone, even as he has been promised that he would never be. Because there are times, of course, in our lives when faith itself seems so weak. Joshua was told, indeed, he was encouraged to believe, to trust, to meditate upon the book of the law, day and night. He heard the voice from heaven speaking, but he could not see him. But here now he sees. It's as as it were, his faith was given sight that it might strengthen him for the battle that is before him. 
Now, we get this every Lord's Day. I know the problem for most of us is that we would prefer what Joshua received. We would like to see this figure show itself on the platform of this church and and speak candidly as he speaks to Joshua. I am the commander of the army of the Lord of hosts. And of course, that would bolster our strength, but really it wouldn't because it would be contrary to the way that God has ordained it. He gives to us, though, things to help us in our weakness and our weak faith every Lord's Day. What are those things? Well, we saw both of them today. The very things that he is in the wake of right now, the very baptism and the Passover, the Lord's Supper, these things that strengthen our faith, they bolster our faith. They're sensible signs. I guarantee you when those children were baptized, they got wet. They knew they were wet. They could, t- they could feel the water on their back and on their head. When you participate in the Lord's Supper, your faith becomes sight as you, as you hold the elements in your hand and you witness them, see them passed around. As you taste them, you smell them, you see them. All of them are gracious gifts to strengthen our weak faith that we might be equipped and ready for the battle. Here, Joshua has the sustaining presence of the Lord to communicate to him that he is not alone. And friends, we are not alone either. Ever. You may not see a figure with a drawn sword, but you might as well because he's always with you. So Joshua responds to this statement. I am the commander of the army of the Lord of hosts. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? Joshua responds in two ways to this event. First, he responds in the way that we ought to respond every time we see the Lord of glory. Every time we come into this place and we participate in the means that he has provided so graciously, he didn't have to give us any of this stuff. He could have just said, look, you know what? Figure figure it out. Fend for yourself. Don't worry about it. Struggle. No, no. He grants to us these gracious gifts that we might see with our eyes. As our eyes are open, as Joshua's eyes are open to what he is witnessing, he worships the God of heaven. He knows that he is beholding the second person of the Trinity, a Christophany of the Old Testament. I'm actually convinced there is no theophany in the Old Testament, but you can argue with me about that later. That every time you hear the voice of God speaking, is the Son that speaks. And he speaks here. He worships, he falls to the ground, he sees the Son, a pre-incarnate Christ, the commander of the army of the Lord of hosts, the one who will secure victory for them and secures victory for you. He has secured it, and he will secure it. So he worships him. Notice he's not corrected. He's not told not to do that. It rules out the idea that this is any kind of angel or there's some weird phantasm of some nature. This is indeed God in the flesh, as it were, in his presence before him. But he also not only worships, but he asks a question. 
and is a question that should flow naturally out of every worship service that we have as a church. What does my Lord say to his servants? What do you have to say to me? I am your servant. I got five stars on my collar, but I'm still your servant. What do you have to say to me? This frames the idea that Joshua was ready and willing to obey. Whatever it is he had to say, whatever he was going to say, and he's going to say a lot in chapter 6. Strange things, I might add. But it shows that he was ready and prepared to hear and obey the voice of the supreme commander, whatever it is he told him. The supreme commander that says to him, as the first instruction upon Joshua's request, he says to him, take off your sandals from your feet. The place you are standing is holy. Now, every one of you in this room should be thinking about one thing, one event, that these words are almost exactly the same. And that is, of course, the Exodus 3 event in which Jesus and which Moses met God at the burning bush. There he is, off doing his thing as a shepherd, tending to Jethro's flock, caring about his business, exiled from Egypt for 40 years, and he notices this bush burning off in the distance, and as any of you would have done, he was curious, and so off he goes to look at it. And when he gets there, he finds out it's not consumed. And when he gets there, not only is it not consumed, but this bush is talking. Bushes don't talk. He didn't run away, though, did he? He was curious. He stayed, and what did he hear? Look, you, get your sandals off your feet. The place you are standing is holy. He was in the presence of the Most High God Himself. He heard the voice of the Son speaking through the bush. When? On the very eve of the battle that He would have with Egypt. Right at the right moment, at the very time in which God ordained it, at the precise second that the servant of the Lord, Moses, needed all the comfort, all the encouragement necessary to go against this Pharaoh, this wicked tyrant, God meets him, comforts him, gives him instruction, guarantees his presence, and helps him. And we know what happens. Egypt falls with a thunderous end. Here on the eve the battle with Jericho, God comes to him, not in a bush, but with a sword, to comfort Joshua, to give to him the instructions, to guide him that he might conquer this mighty, mighty city. He's done that for us. He's done that for you. In the giving of the Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man, he who descended from heaven, took upon flesh as you have, has made you great promises and has said to you, 
Even as he has said to his disciples on the end before he ascended to his father, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Go and do battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. The victory is yours because I have secured it. You will win the day because I am with you. As much as he was with Moses, he was with Joshua in the very similar events as he begins to move against the city to claim it as he was commanded. Joshua 5 teaches us many things. A number of lessons that can be gleaned right out of this narrative. First, that the sacraments are the means by which we are prepared for battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we must use them. I said this two weeks ago. Those that fail to use the means that God has given the way He has ordered them are in trouble. You're defenseless. Well, that's not the way I would have designed it. That's irrelevant. The commander of the army of the Lord has. Victory is yours, but you must use the means. Pick up the sword, pick up the shield. Lay hold of the sacraments that Christ gives to his church. Heed the preaching of his word. They must be used. They happen in the context of worship. Uniquely, every Lord's Day. To miss these things is to miss the equipping of the Lord for you as people. Second, worship, in which these things happen, the very confines of this day, the first day of the week, to prepare us, not in retrospect to the week we've had. How many of you think that way? Sunday's like the end of the week. It's not. It's the first day of the week. It's the beginning of the week to prepare us ahead of time. As God here, the Son, in this Christophany on the plains of Jericho is preparing Joshua ahead of time before he goes into battle. Here we are prepared ahead of time to take on the world, the flesh, and the devil. It reminds us, as it reminded Joshua, that we are not in charge around here either. Look, left to ourselves, we'd have come up with all kinds of different ways of doing this. People have tried it. They are trying it in churches all over the world. These are the ordained means. We need nothing else. We don't need Lent. We don't need the Advent candle ceremonies. We don't need the liturgical calendar. We only need the means that God has provided the church. They're simple. And so we use them. We're not in charge here. The pastor doesn't have the right or the, the, the prerogative to change these things. The elders don't either. No human agent, no one. The Lord is the commander of his church. Insofar as his ministers and elders are therefore obedient to him, the people submit as they submitted to Joshua. But always remembering that the Lord sits at the center of everything that we do. He's the commander. He's the one who secures the victory. It is he that drowns the armies of Pharaoh in the Red Sea. It is he that brings the walls of Jericho to to nothing. 
It is He that guarantees our safe arrival in our heavenly rest. It is all Him. We use the means He's given us. And so in the sacraments and in worship and then in the promises remembered, just as Joshua was not fighting this battle alone, neither are you. You and I have been promised constant care. I sometimes joke that if guardian angels are are real, that is to say that if we actually get assigned them, that's not, may or may not be true. The jury's still out on that one. I've often joked that my guardian angel will come up to me in, in heaven and say, you know, you kept me pretty busy. Some of us need more constant care than others, but the fact remains is that we always have the constant care of our Lord. His love, His help, His presence, as He was with Joshua, as He was with Moses, He will be with you. He will keep you, He will guide you, He will direct you. You will be victorious. Use the means He's given. Trust Him. Walk with Him, even as Joshua did. Right into battle, to a city stronger than him, stronger than the armies of Israel, But they were victorious because they did. They did it the way the commander of the army of the Lord said to do it. Amen. Our Father, we thank you for your word and for all that it teaches us. These simple narratives, again, we confess to you that we read them often and miss so much of these things. And so we pray that you would cement these into our hearts and minds that you, the commander of the army of the Lord, will never leave us. You'll keep us, you'll guide us, you'll direct us. We are victorious, for you are victorious. And so help us, may we trust you. May we use the means you've given to us. May you strengthen us in our weakness. All for the glory of your kingdom, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.